0: Hi, I'm Brian Lay.
1: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Fisher.
0: And this is the Diversify Our Narrative podcast.
1: Welcome to the Diversify Our Narrative podcast. This episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more in depth about some things we touched on in our last episode, which trace the history of higher education in the United States. We're going to be looking here specifically at the moral act and land grant universities and the ties between the university system and higher education institutions and colonialism. And then we're also going to move into whiteness in academia. And these two topics are definitely interrelated. So I'm looking forward to this episode. It's something that I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast for a while.
0: Yeah. And especially for me, like, I don't think I thought about this too much um, until we started scripting for this episode and it was something in the back of my mind but I'm glad we're talking about it but the so it's important to start I think this conversation with the idea of land ownership um, and its origins because I think as a society and as people we take the concept of owning things for granted Um, and so it can be hard to imagine a world without like saying this is mine or this is my house um but just like a reminder like for because humans have been around for like 200 three hundred thousand years and for a lot of it we were like hunter-gatherer societies we then really you know settled down and live in cul-de-sacs and stuff you know so yeah so all the agriculture that was done by indigenous people were to help the land grow more plentiful but it was never really about like overextending or over manipulating the environment or calling this like your land and your home and your farm because it belonged to everyone
1: right it's crazy to think about like ownership and land ownership specifically as a concept in terms of not having existed forever because for a lot of history, especially when I think about the history of the United States um, after colonization happened, the 13 colonies like land ownership was happening. But when we think about like history that extends far, far, far into the past, um, land ownership is not necessarily something that was taking place um, a long time ago. Yeah. So it started land ownership as a response like we we're talking about has to do with agriculture. So a response to harnessing land for agriculture. And it began to take place around the Neolithic Revolution, which started in 10,000 BC. And that's when people started to grow large arrays of crops and then in turn settle near these large areas. Over time, people built housing and rather than settling for months at a time, they would settle permanently.
0: Yeah. And permanent settlement, like, isn't inherently a bad thing. A lot of places, a lot of peoples would settle near a river and then after a few months they'd move to a different river and like that's like all good and dandy um but it slowly started to snowball into defensiveness over one's housing or food supply um so you know with that like communities grew and so they had surpluses of food because they were able to manipulate the environment even more and so this snowballed even more um and then eventually you know when you're defensive about this is my home this is my food it starts to spread into other things like personal items um, you could think weapons or farming tools to family and even people
1: right and even just land like that encompasses so much when we say land we're also talking about water air animals and then like you just mentioned it extends to the people who are inhabiting it Um, and land ownership then becomes a form of Freedom, And I'm using like freedom in air quotes here as long with the word ownership, because both of these terms hold value as the colonizer describes them. Um, So in colonial society, property becomes equatable to freedom. And we've seen throughout history that whiteness is tied to the acquisition of property or freedom.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so this led to the idea that just like all land must be owned and that any land that is not owned by the standard set by the colonizer is therefore up for grabs. And it invited a lot of um, invasions, colonization, everything that we know today.
1: Yeah, Challenging that idea is something that is helpful for me to conceptualize conversations around colonization and decolonization. I'm really glad that we're starting this podcast with what land means. Um, What about you, Brian? Like, how does this fit into how you think about um, colonization and land ownership?
0: Yeah, I mean, this conversation for me started um, over a year ago. This was like beginning of the pandemic because of uh, BLM and because it was just like a time when we were looking at, oh, how, like, so I was part of an environmental book club. And so we were talking about how does ownership land ownership how does that fall into colonization but how does that like impact the environment why do we think that you know we can own the earth like that that seems like a weird idea uh when you really like start to think about it and then that led to conversations about race and uh it's just it's just a great starting point because it, it just in the beginning challenges your idea of like society
1: Right. And I think everything kind of draws back to the land that we are on. And like I said, like the air that we're breathing, the water that we're drinking. So I think when you start any conversation, land is honestly like a really great place to start. I know I'm a food studies minor and we do a lot of talk about like the environment and what we are taking from it. um, When we think about food and agriculture and the fact that harnessing land In a lot of ways, like shelter is certainly a part of that. But in a lot of ways, it's extracting the resources like we were just mentioning. It's not I mean, yeah, it's not just the land per se. It's what can this land give us?
0: Um, Yeah. And it's just so toxic because it's like if one person believes land should be owned and another person doesn't, one side kind of wins because they're like, well, I'm just going to take your land, you know? Yeah, interesting.
1: I've never really put that spin on it. Like that, exactly what you just said. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to talk about the Moral Act, which this came up in our last episode, and we definitely like mentioned that we were going to talk about it again. So the process of like land accumulation is not straightforward at all and it has to do with there's a lot of different things at play, especially when we're talking about like the United States and how the government acquired land or seized land. Um, but for our purposes, we're going to be talking about um, colonial strategies that had to do with higher education and then that obviously extended to the rest of the United States and really shaped our country both like the physical land and then how we um, how we where we're studying the physical locations and when we're studying and also the people who were displaced by all of this um so yeah let's get move on with the Moral Act.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if you remember from the last episode, we were talking about the Moral Act of 1862, which was signed into law by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. And even though it's not super well known, like I'm taking a law class right now, we haven't covered that. um, It's definitely intrinsic to the formation of the North American Empire.
1: Yeah. The Act gave public land to Union states. So at this time, it was obviously the Civil War. So it was union states who were granted the public land. And to be specific, it was 30,000 acres of indigenous land for each senator and representative to give out. And like, we should remind ourselves consistently that this is land acquired through unfair treaties and outright seizures. So states were expected to sell these lands, these land grants, in order to raise money for new public universities, universities. That would research and educate settlers in culture, science and mechanical arts, but primarily prioritize making advances in agriculture and mechanical, not to mention also military education. So it made agricultural and mechanical education more widely accessible to the settlers who were settling in these new lands.
0: Yeah, and so uh, let's take a step back and look at what is happening here. So the seized land is being turned into capital for constructing universities with the goals of furthering industry. And industries, these are industries that will harm the environment. And at the time, this was directly tied to the expansion of the American empire westward, the... uh, uh, Man of Destiny. What is that? Manifest Manifest
1: Destiny. Yeah. The
0: Manifest Destiny. (laughs) If you remember that from history class. Um, And this was all in the priorities of settler colonization to acquire and develop more and more land.
1: Right. And also with these industries that the act is furthering, like I said, um, agricultural and mechanical, those are also that's like an economic play by the government because those are going to generate more capital, which will lead to future land grabs and expansions westward. So it's this cyclic process of settler colonialism that continues to adapt itself. And we'll see how that carries into the future and into today.
0: Yeah, very ominous. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lands were usually sold quickly to raise money for college endowments. Uh, but for some reason, they remained in the possession of the states And continue to produce revenue for their associated universities. And in all, the act redistributed 10.7 million acres of land from more than 250 tribal nations for the benefit of 52 colleges, an area, so 10.7 million acres of land, an area approximately the size of Denmark. Stolen.
1: I love comparing area sizes, like when you like grab them Mm -hmm. all together and like putting it into like the size of a country. That's crazy to think about. But um, moving on, like according to Pulitzer Center research, revealed that by the 20th century, the grants were worth about 22.8 million in endowment principal and unsold land, or about 500 million in today's money. By contrast, the U.S. paid just 400 thousand dollars for Indigenous title to the same land, although much of it was simply seized. Not a single dollar was paid for more than a quarter of the parcels that were supplied the grants
0: yeah that's like so little money it's crazy like 500 million dollars in exchange for four hundred thousand dollars. that's like hard to conceptualize um let me see if i could do to my head real quick like that's like four cents for like a hundred dollars or like you know like, it's like nothing
1: <laughs> yeah there's no way that i could do that in my head i was just like <laughs> waiting for you to like spot the answer um yeah no that's it's there's like the exchange is not going on obviously that's a very small amount of money in exchange for all this land
0: yeah so so let's i mean like that's over half a million acres of indigenous land redistributed uh and they're just they're still owned by the states and their respective universities so it just it still hasn't been given back there's no reparations i mean this isn't new news like i I think is in higher education or in American uh, internal politics. But um, it's just good to have numbers to this because it really draws the scale of how much stealing happened.
1: Right, hey, and this is the basis and the history of what is known as land-grant universities. But all of this doesn't just freeze in time and space in the late 1800s. It doesn't just stop there. So today, land-grant institutions, which is the universities that were established from the land granted to them by the states benefiting from the Morrill Act, enroll more than a million students, and lead many states in education. Simultaneously, they offer little acknowledgement that the foundation of their success lies in the stealing of indigenous land and the eradication of indigenous people.
0: Yeah, uh, so some of those schools, if you have heard of MIT or Cornell or UC Berkeley, those are huge name schools, um, and then also a lot of state flagships. Texas A&M in Texas, University of Kentucky in Kentucky, University of Illinois, University of Idaho, Rhode Island, uh, Oklahoma State, Ohio State, uh, which totals to 70 schools that received money from the Morrill Act.
1: Right. And then speaking, going back to UC Berkeley, it's not just UC Berkeley, but the entire California public university system is in fact a land grant institution, which means that the land was used to buy and then build and then in turn buy and then build one of the largest university systems in the world. And this includes California community colleges, state universities, and the UC system. And I'm from California and the UC system is definitely, it's a big deal. Every, everyone knows the UC, you just referred to things as like UC, San Diego, UC. Um, Riverside. And like a lot of people know the bigger schools like UCLA and UC Berkeley, but there is a whole string of schools up and down the state that are UCs.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that the UC system also included like the Cal States and the community colleges. That's really crazy.
1: I don't know if it's a UC Um, system, but it's like California. Yeah, I guess so. It's like the California system of schools. They're all connected. It's like the public schools
0: in California. Mm -hmm. Man. So anyway, like as you can see, Uh, These schools bring in so much money from their research. Um, Sports teams, we did go on that rant from last (laughs) episode about sports. And just like this money is reinvested into the school. Like it's it's used for land expansion or land development, um, renovating buildings and all this stuff. But it's never really used to acknowledge or pay reparations which is crazy. Um, And to be sure, There are definitely some land-grant institutions that are established in the name of diversity. So in 1890, there was land granted for historically Black colleges. And in 1994, there was land granted for tribal colleges and universities. Um, In addition, if you want to learn more about this, you can go to the Federally Recognized Tribes Extension Program, or FRTEP. Uh, and they support 1890 and 1862 land grants uh, and provide informal community-based learnings on reservations. Nice.
1: Okay, so that's a really good resource to um, to talk about and just know about, I think. But also when we're talking about um, the how the land that these schools have and the money that they're bringing in um, from, like you said, it's research or sports, not only is it reinvested into the school, but it's reinvested to buy more real estate and more property which is like this same logic of the land-grant university from the moral act that's being used over and over and continues on today so we're going to talk a little bit more about the real estate and its important its importance to the modern university so yeah yeah
0: i can't wait for this section as a <laughs> as a business student that absolutely despises business and like how it's being done today. Like this was my favorite. (laughs) My
1: favorite kind of business student. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's something that I think I I never thought about prior to really doing some of this research is how exactly our universities are, you know, using their land. And also like we were saying, like land, it makes you think of like physical spaces and it also made me really frustrated because when i was initially doing this research all of our classes were online so it was like i'm not even like on like on like this physical space that is owned by these campuses i'm like paying for <laughs> it or they're investing in more property but i'm taking a lot of classes online um but college and university portfolios are often made up of many types of real properties so contiguous parcels that make up the campus as you know it, but also leases on nearby property or smaller parcels in other locations, which like I mentioned is that exact logic of the land-grant university um, using money from real estate to fund the school.
0: Yeah, and some universities, like they don't even know what land they own. Um, I found this, it was a confidential case, so take this um, example with a grain of salt, but a school, it was a university in California, they owned land owned they owned land that a farm was located on um, in Arizona and the family that had been working that farm was working there for like like at at that point like 100 years Um, and they they owned that land and it was like in another state and it just kind of goes to show the scale of land that some of these universities own especially like getting away from the northeast and going into like west coast um southeast coast and south coast like they own so much land
1: yeah and sometimes it's land that's not even in the same state as them it's a state that's like across the country but they own that land which is another crazy thing to think about it's not just like so there they there's really no investment in that community um at all it's just the land that's being owned um before we move on did you what do you know about like what when you hear about university endowments before today's episode, what what do you, what is like comes up for you? What does that make you think of?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a huge nerd, and so <laughs> when I heard the word endowment, like going into college, I was like, I need to know what this is because what is this? Like, Emory, for example, has like eight billion dollars in their endowment, but what does that mean? So I, I kind of knew what it was, and we'll get into it. Um, but before college i mean i didn't really know i just thought it was like a pool of money that they had lying around um and that was it what about you
1: yeah i guess i also thought it was like a pool of money that they had lying around and i thought that that pool of money was created by students who had gone to the school who are now like philanthrop phil like philanthropy basically like super rich alumni basically which i mean like sometimes sometimes that is the (laughs) case um but that doesn't compromise all of it but that's what i was thinking i was like oh wow like you know like harvard business grads are making all this money and they're such generous people and they're giving it back (laughs) to their school but that's like not how it it's not how it works precisely
0: yeah, so looking into the notes, I actually realized I never put in the definition. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna define it. The an endowment is a portfolio of assets, um, and for nonprofits, it's usually dictated like how they can spend that money. Um, for a university, for example, I it could be like here is a portfolio of real estate, mutual funds, investments in the stock market, investments in whatever um you cannot touch this that we gave you but you can touch all the returns that come to you based on you know the assets in this and so that's called like the principal and so in a lot of endowments for nonprofits uh that's that's just kind of how it works like you can't touch the principal but usually the principal is big enough to give you a sizable um revenue each year so it's like a sustainable source of income uh like for Emory I mean it's like millions hundreds of millions of dollars each year that comes in because their endowment is like eight billion dollars and you can add to this uh principle so like if i was a wealthy investor graduated from emory and i'm like man i love my school i want to give them um a five hundred thousand shares of google i would give it to them and then they wouldn't be able to touch it but they'd be able to get the returns each year
1: wow Interesting. Wait, that explanation I feel like was really good and succinct because I didn't really know much of any of that. And it makes sense now to me like why real estate would be so important and land ownership would be so important because of the money that that would generate. Um, So all this is making like more and more sense. And it also (laughs) is like to start with the conversation about like what is ownership and what is land ownership is a really, once again, like a really great place to start that conversation. So like we were saying, like I was just mentioning now that it makes sense, like real estate is so important to a university's endowment. It's not just the land that's actively being occupied, but the land that the university will buy as an investment to sustain wealth. So they could use this land to collect rent money, hold the land until it's profitable and sell it or even share the land with other institutions, corporations and state entities. An example of how an institution could make money from its real estate is real property can generate cash for rents, mortgage, or a joint venture, all of which allow insti- an institution to maintain some degree of control over um, the way that the property is used.
0: Yeah, so this would be property that they can't, they have jurisdiction to like move around and sell and stuff, uh, which is not all their property, but a sizable chunk if they are really into real estate development and expansion Um, leasing properties to a third company uh, or a third party allows institution to maintain the most control and so that's the one that a lot of universities do Um, so they may offer short-term leases to offices or other schools nearby or um, even using their own facilities uh, when class isn't in session so like in the summer my school is still being used in at full capacity because they're doing summer camps or conferences and that's a that's a huge way that the land makes money for them
1: right and i was i was saying earlier how like i was frustrated when i was learning about all of this because my classes were online and then like i wasn't even like in the physical space but now i'm going to be frustrated when i'm like at the physical space knowing that there's like more land <laughs> that's owned and like i have no idea what it even is it's maybe it's not even yeah. in new york like who knows Um, But the short of it is that universities can use real estate, sometimes in a predatory way, to stay alive and thrive. This is particularly true in cities or areas where rent costs are rising and a university buys more land for its students' housing, which raises the cost of regular community members contributing to gentrification. And this is definitely a problem that is seen in New York. One example of the many, I'm just going to name... One, that's like the first that comes to mind, but all universities are responsible for this, honestly. But Columbia expanded in West Harlem in an area that was called Manhattanville. It used to be a more industrial area, and so a lot of local businesses were erased with the university's expansion. Um, Oh, that's awful. Yeah, in Atlanta, do you know, I mean, I don't know like the makeup of Atlanta or how the city, and I've never been. So do you know of examples of something like that happening or
0: um, I would imagine that this is happening more with others school- because like we are more in the suburbs. So Emory has like a lot of land to go around. Um, we are expanding into a high school, which is a little weird because I feel like that's sort of like ethically a little weird. Like, why are you taking land from a public high school? Um, but I know this, this schools that are more in the cities like Georgia State and Georgia Tech. Um, they do take up a lot of the land just for like parking decks, which is like the worst. Like you just destroyed someone's housing so that a student could park for, you know, it's like, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, I I guess I think mostly about the fact that um, when a university has a campus somewhere, they have a housing, they build housing in a certain place new businesses are going to move in and make it like a hipper Mm. area and try to attract young students and try to pine for students money so like that's like I guess my most like stereotypical vision of gentrification is it becomes this like new hip area and the old businesses and community is displaced but thinking about like parking decks to just like physical spaces that are now turned into something else only to serve the students and the community that lived there was displaced and when we start thinking about it we're thinking about who who are these people what is happening like who's being displaced like even if there's economic improvement in the area doesn't mean that that's good for everyone except especially the residents who lived there before
0: yeah and i i don't think like all of this is too shocking um a 2018 report by real estate listing service rent cafe showed that when private universities expand into urban areas, gentrification results in long time, low income residents are displaced, just like we've been talking about. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So universities are not just landowners, but renters as well. So they rent from a landowner state or separate entity, and they have leases on things like uh, crucial pieces of land where they're building housing or, um, buildings that are off campus but still belong to them so an example would be at emory there's a innovation space uh that was just launched like a year or two ago and it's like a 10 minute walk from campus and it's located in a shopping center um, and in residential areas so they probably are leasing that land rather than owning that land
1: interesting and we talked about this a lot last episode with how tuition is skyrocketing and enrollments are being capped but we're seeing property expansion across the board so I think like this is hugely frustrating as a student and it becomes even more so when you're paying tons of money taking out tons of loans to finance your education and then I mean like I mentioned and then you're taking classes online or like you're not even able to go to school it's frustrating regardless but I think especially the last year um, paying so much money for a school that's online but then your school is also expanding its real estate it is um definitely yeah. there's like a lot of there's a lot of question marks around all of it um, yeah
0: and we'll get into maybe the um the responsibilities part of like being a student and paying your money to all these you know land hungry institutions but also it's just tricky because us as students we want like better things and better facilities and so it's like the university is expanding sometimes against our will and sometimes for the students will because students want that otherwise they would go to another school that would do it
1: right and another thing that this is just something that i'm thinking of is the fact that when thinking about expanding real estate holdings i think a lot about campuses who um or universities that have campuses overseas and like what that Mm. means to own land not not just like having study abroad programs but really having campuses and like actual setups in other places that's another I feel like another perhaps even we could like have an episode about I'm sure there's like a lot of Mm -hmm. research on it um and that's not something that we really got into this episode but that's another thing to consider is like what does it mean to expand internationally and what's happening when we go into other countries being like a United States edu- um, institution, like a US institution going into another country and how that disrupts the other country or perhaps it generates wealth. But like there is this moral question I feel like because it is very reminiscent of like overseas colonialism. And yeah. um, I know like, I don't wanna like name drop, but like I know like NYU is like very, right. very, And my school too has like, there is like a Parsons, Paris, um, but I know NYU has a ton of study abroad um, colleges all across the world and even has like actual schools where you can get degrees in Singapore, I believe, and Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's another example of having real estate all around the world, not just even in the United States and like other states, but all around the world.
0: Yeah, that's that's the school I was thinking of was NYU. And just like, I mean, the final bow on this section, when thinking about land in colleges, you also have to think about where is your food coming from as a student? Um, For a lot of universities, they're going to use like corporate food management companies. And that's like not at all helping the community that they're a part of. And the more you can, you know, move towards real food, local food, sustainable food, um, especially as a university with like how much money they have, that can really uphold and uh, help out the local community, or it can really sap it of like food production. And um, yeah, food is huge.
1: Totally. There definitely is. Food is a really great example. And I'm definitely all for like local sustainable farming and how beneficial that could be to the surrounding communities at large. But just that's just one of like the many examples of there are ways to invest in the communities that the land that the university owns is in like there are definitely ways to do that um but i think that the more that students are educated and like find themselves having stakes in this the more that we could see that happen because maybe they can hold their institutions accountable but i think we'll get to the whole accountability and the role of a student at the end of the episode yeah Should we move into like the other side of the coin, which is what's going on in the more like pedagogical realm of these institutions in terms of whiteness and academia?
0: Yeah, let's go into it. So our next topic, we're going to be talking about whiteness in academia, um, higher education, and just talking about physical displacement. You know, here we're going to move on. Um, but really, they're the same thing because you can't have the physical without the psychological um so yeah
1: exactly and going back to the last episode we we trace the history of higher education in our country which was for a long time only a white man's game and even before that it was before the u.s colonies that was true for higher education in europe and like with schools like cambridge and oxford so there's a long history of white men dominating academia and that like extended to white women too eventually but it's you see how that has repercussions today because a lot of like what is considered academic was generated during those times and that's still considered you know, academic today.
0: Yeah, so if a higher education and academia was foreign oriented towards white men um, and eventually white women, for the most of our history, we're gonna see the effects of that today regardless of the strides in diversifying college professors or scholarship or affirmative action. Um, because a lot of knowledge was created for centuries for white people and white scholarship. Um, and that knowledge is still being studied in institutions now. And it was created just for a very specific part of the population.
1: Yes, it was created for and also by. So when like we're thinking about like the point of view mm-hmm. of these authors that we're studying a lot of times in classes, um, it's a very specific point of view that we're learning from. And I guess when we talk about these issues, what comes to mind for me is like liberal arts majors and what we study in liberal arts classes. And that's just because it's what I'm most familiar with. Like I think of English literature and philosophy, for example, like studying like Hobbes and Hegel. But I'm sure that this can apply to other majors, too.
0: Yeah. So I'll talk about my majors like music, uh, for example, is just rooted in white supremacy. I think there's an emphasis on music theory, but that theory is made for and uh was created by white men um and we sort of discredit music around the world like uh mariachi music doesn't seem like it's on the same tier as classical music uh western classical music you know and it's just it rinse and repeat uh for every concept in music and it's just it's very white um and the term ethnomusicology which refers to like the research of um, music and culture um outside of like American culture. Um, it's it's not the most popular study in music. Um, but yeah. And then like obviously I said, I'm also a business student and business is incredibly white and is almost dedicated to um, upholding all these white structures. Um, and it's just a lot, you know. Um, and then like my last example is something that I learned about from friends uh, that are applying to medical school where there's a lot of textbooks uh, that were created by white men that would say just like factually and biologically inaccurate things. So they would say like the skin of a black person is thicker and so they don't feel pain and so you can be more forceful when giving them shots with needles and stuff like that. And it's just it's crazy that um, you know people in all areas of life with so much authority are also learning from incredibly biased and almost factually incorrect uh, books
1: right right yeah that's that's a crazy example um i'm sure that like a lot of people who we talk to and who are involved with dawn regardless of what they're majoring and can pull up some sort of example of this um i'd be interested to know more about Subjects that I like don't identify with at all that you don't really think Mm -hmm. like there's like literature per se in them but like even thinking about like math or science um, like science like Earth sciences like there's so many different things where it's like what is considered Academic what are we studying in the classroom? And then like what is not being studied in the classroom? Like there's two questions like this is biased because It's written by this person but then like what's being excluded what we're not learning there's like a bias to what we're not learning too not not in what like exists in what we're not learning but like the fact that we're not learning it you know what i mean yeah Um, totally yeah
0: yeah so uh all this to say like it's not that this knowledge created by and for white people is uh inherently like not not important or uh, not fundamental though sometimes it can be dangerous Uh, But really, it begs the question of what lens are we looking through to see the world and learn um, and just who created these lenses? And it also begs the question, what information are we not learning, like you said? Uh, Because historically, there are a lot of things that just aren't considered academic or worthy of academia.
1: Right. And I think like the first step you can do as a student is to just acknowledge where your information is coming from. I know I have a professor this semester who introduces the author of the work and what time period and where they're writing from and like all their background because I think that's so important like it's so intrinsic to what you're about to read and I think a lot of times when I'm reading like a textbook or something similar I just skip right over the author's name because I don't really like identify with them I just want to know the information but it's so important to know the context of where your information's coming from and also make sure like you're of course pulling from diverse sources I mean I think that's really the whole point of the work that Dawn tries to do is like diversify that narrative. So there's an issue that we're talking about right now with the canon and like the literal information that we're taught in colleges and that's considered academic. Um, And then we also need to look about who is teaching us and who is running these schools and why, because these questions are all interrelated. Like it's all connected. And we talk about this a lot with like K through 12 we have, but when we bring it to higher education, there's like a whole nother tier because there's so many layers. Yeah. It's like a hierarchy of people and it's who's at the top, who's generating this knowledge. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So we're going to briefly touch on something that's super interesting that I never learned about, which was the canon. Um, and more importantly, bibliographic algorithms that favor white authors over authors of color. And it's a really covert issue that isn't well known. Um, Even though we know like algorithms are a big thing in today's world, I never thought about it in terms of like research. So yeah, do you wanna tell more about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I mean, we're just kind of, we were just really referring to the canon, like how that manifested historically and was white historically because higher institutions in the United States were generating like knowledge coming from white men who were being educated. But now there's this contemporary issue of like you said, like algorithmic um, injustice within bibliographies and within libraries. And I learned this in a class like two years ago. It was like a research-based class. And I'm gonna try to do my best job of explaining it. But basically when we think about using our university's online research base, like thinking like JSTOR or something like that, when we type in what we're lo- looking for the algorithm brings up like the most popular articles so it's not the articles that are like the best like or like the most fruitful uh, I mean obviously that would be a bias to even like say that there is one that's the best but it's mm-hmm. the one that's been clicked on the most time so it's like a it's like a Google search almost it's like the most popular information because it's been clicked on the most is gonna come up first um, does that make sense? And like, we'll get into why that's like super problematic. But does that even make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense. And in theory, like the algorithm should be trying to find the most useful articles because there's so much research time that goes into academics. um, But then it probably means that something with a catchy title or white sounding name is designated as useful. Um, Even if you're So copious with your filters and stuff, I'm sure it's still going to happen.
1: Right. And like I said, like I compared it to a Google search, like that's what makes the most sense to me. But for when you Google something, like if you just need to know like a quick fact, it doesn't really matter per se, like who wrote it. Like if you're just looking up like what's like the weather today or something like that. But when you're looking for research to like base your understanding of a topic on or to write a research paper, And you're only Mm -hmm. viewing like and your whole class, like tons and tons of people, whoever's using this research base is only viewing this the same documents, the same information. Like, how does that diversify a narrative at all? And the same ideas are then perpetuated again and again and again, not because they're quality per se, but because they're the ones I've been clicked on time and time again. And oftentimes the authors who show up on the first pages of results are white authors.
0: Yeah. And, you know. to back this up, there have been so many times in my classes where I've had internal biases about if an author was from Asia or from China. Um, and some of this could be because like I don't speak their language. Um, but I think a lot of it just has to do with credibility and like internal biases about that. Um, it can be really easy to fall into the trap of associating whiteness with credibility because they went to Western institutions. but and like Asian or South American institutions can be seen as foreign. Um, or bias because they have a different government system than us. Um, But I don't know, we just don't presume the same issues of bias and foreign and credibility with white institutions, which is super hypocritical.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I also think about the fact that a lot of times And this doesn't happen all the time, of course. If it's a good scholar and a good scholarly work, like everything should be credited and there should be footnotes and all the information should be accounted for. But there are a lot of instances in which there's, I guess like the term that I usually hear is like intellectual dispossession where Mm. white authors, or it could be any author for that matter, but for this sake, um, what happens here is like authors will steal other authors' work. So if it's like, it would be incredibly problematic if a white author is getting credit for the work of an author of color and they're coming up on the front pages. Of course, like those dynamics could be changed. It could be any author getting credit for any author. But regardless, like if you're coming up on the top algorithm and you're getting the most credit, but you're stealing information from the sources that are like far back in the algorithm, that's like super, super problematic. So definitely another thing to keep in mind as a student if you're a college student or if you're going into college and you have stakes in research make sure you know you know how these algorithms are working against you or against you know society in general
0: yeah yeah Okay, so let's talk about the faculty and administrators of our higher education institutions, because that matters too, um, if not more, because it's not just about what's being taught and who is teaching it. Um, this definitely came up in our episode about educational equity with K-12 teachers, but now we're talking about higher ed.
1: Right, and this is my last year in college. Is your last year too, Ben. Yeah, it is. Just checking, yeah. And for the last three years, and then this year... I have a really diverse mix of professors and faculty, and I can't really speak for the administration of my school. But I also know that I go to a very radical school in an incredibly diverse city. And I feel like I should just name it because I don't know if I have this episode yet, but it's called The New School. It's in New York City. Um, And so that's been my experience. um, But I was also knowing those things. I was curious to find out what the reality was in other places across the country. What have you, what has your experience been these last few years in college?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've also had a very positive experience with diversity because um, Emory has a really diverse administration. It being in at Atlanta, uh, where the population is 50% black. And so there's a lot of just like focus on diversity from a geographical standpoint. But I do see a skew of predominantly white faculty members in like in my world, which is like the music and business departments. Um, I would also say that in a lot of other places like math or um, political science. And so while like the policy admissions programming may be more diverse than other schools, I think our faculty members are pretty lacking Um, outside of like African-American studies or East Asian studies because those faculty members are obviously of those races. Um, So yeah, so like I was saying, faculty in higher education includes professors associate professors, assistant professors, uh, instructors, lecturers, assisting, uh, well, adjunct professors, interim professors, a whole bunch, of, whole bunch of people. And according to the National Center for Education Statistics, in the fall of 2018, of the 1.5 million faculty in degree-granting institutions, uh, only 54% were full-time, 46 were part-time, and of the full-time faculty, were white men, 35% were white women, that's 75% white faculty.
1: Yeah, that's a terrible number really and it's kind of hard to like add up all those percentages but if we're thinking about just to reiterate what you just said, so it's like 75% of the full-time faculty members at degree-granting post-secondary institutions are white and Well, we want to think that these things are getting better, that this number could be improving in terms of becoming more diverse. Um, I don't really know if changes are going to be made anytime soon. And it's not only because a lot of times higher institutions, you know, will preach about diversity and will like write statements about diversity and not necessarily follow through. That's certainly part of it. But I also think in doing this research for this episode, I've came across the fact, and I wasn't necessarily aware of this, but there's a real job crisis and labor crisis that's happening in universities right now, and it's only getting worse and exasperating the issue of the lack of diversity.
0: Yeah, there's a systematic uh, downsizing in higher education of, you know, the professorate. And so there's a ton of liberal arts PhDs competing for jobs. And this has just led to a lot of hopelessness and resignation among graduate students. And understandably so, like you're paying all this money and you can't get a job. So graduate students, regardless of race or gender, have to live in uncertainty while their debt grows. Um, And there are so few jobs available for Ph.D. graduates if you're not going to be a professor and uh, even far fewer of them for the tenure track positions.
1: Right, and although this burden falls on all graduate students, just 37.5% of the tenured faculty are women, and only 8% are women of color, according to the data from the U.S. Department of Education's National Center of Education Statistics. Um, although, given those numbers, as many women as men are earning degrees.
0: Yeah, so. Yeah, it's that's a, a weird disparity there. Um, and along with the scarcity of jobs, According to a survey by the American Association of University Professors, average salaries for full-time U.S. college and university faculty members fell by almost 0.5% in the 2020, to 2020, in the 2020 to 2021 academic year when adjusted for inflation, which is very weird.
1: Yeah, I mean, in part, this is due to COVID, but also because salaries for faculty have remained pretty stagnant and never really recovered from the 2008, 2009 recession. And this is all just so crazy to think about, especially in regards to our conversation last episode about student debt and the lack of jobs coming out of college. So not only if you're going into academia in this way, are you fearing not having a job and you have so much debt to carry along with you and you're gonna have more and more, but also your pay is dropping. Your pay is dropping once you get a job. Oh, that's so terrifying.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Um, And not only that, but grad students and adjuncts in schools are having their labor exploited. Uh, I'm sure if you're in college, you know that like a lot of TAs or uh, lecturers are not like full-time faculty and they're not really getting paid for it like that. Uh, They may be getting like a discount or a coverage of their tuition, um, but they're mostly doing that work for free or low wages. And so, faculty members are pretty reluctant to speak out against controversial matters like this, um, such as their treatment or treatment to their peers. Uh, But that has a lot to do with diversity or lack thereof and uh, inclusion. And so, this job and labor crisis is really connected to diversifying higher education um, and social justice.
1: Right. And I don't think I really, because I'm not someone who like necessarily wants to you know go into higher education in this way and. Um, become any part of a faculty. So I don't think I ever took into account the hierarchy and like the structures that are involved and how much work goes into. um, I mean, I did understand like how much work goes into to an extent goes into attaining a position like that. But I didn't understand, I guess, you know, the structures, the structures involved, like what it even means to be really like a faculty member. And I certainly didn't understand the fact that there is like such a crisis, like in terms of the jobs and the labor market.
0: Yeah. And it's just I mean, it's crazy how if you graduate with a Ph.D., like you really can't do anything else other than academia, because the way you write and research is so tailored to higher education and academia that It's it doesn't really translate to other researchy kind of positions or like, you know, like getting a Ph.D. in psychology is very different from getting like a master's in psychology because one allows you to practice in real life and one allows you to research about it.
1: Right. Yeah. I think about about writing a lot. I mean, there's definitely like opportunities to do writing, but like a lot of this writing is like academic writing and like where is the money coming from or going to for the research and the writing that's done. Um, these are like I don't have answers to these questions there, but I think they're questions that are like important to ask when you're attending colleges, regardless if you, regardless if you have any intention of getting a PhD or becoming a grad student. I think it's just like knowing the environment that you're in and the people that are working for you. I know that I'm in a lecture and I have a TA right now, and it's not like I need to go ask like about her financial situation, but it's just like acknowledging that like a lot of the work that the people that are doing. For you, maybe like free labor, or they're not getting compensated enough. So just be aware and cognizant of that as a student. Um, any other thoughts on on that segment about faculty and academia?
0: I think we're good. I think well, let's let's talk about just like what's being done and what's how can we decolonize the university system?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, there's this large. Gap and something that I really struggle with a lot this paradox of going to a very radical school where the student body and the faculty you know are knowledgeable about colonization about decolonization um and like very have like a lot of engaging conversations and like we are like just a, a lot of like radical thinking around it however you know still participating in a university that And in a university system and higher education institutions that are, you know, perpetuating inequalities via real estate and via modes of and logic of settler settler colonialism. I wonder if that's something that you grapple with as well, being a part of a system that I mean, I I love going to school and I enjoy going to school and I'm really grateful about the school and the education that I'm getting, but just not really knowing how to grapple with all the hypocrisies that exist within it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely relate to this because you know this is a lot of money that is going towards, like, like we said earlier, um, land grabs or upholding white supremacy in a lot of like financial ways, or you know, interacting with the labor market in very interesting ways, and like you feel complicit because you're giving them your money, um, but. That kind of asks the question just like what are the responsibilities of like a f- student or a faculty member um do you have any examples on your campus or like anything that you're thinking of
1: yeah definitely the new school is very like student forward in terms of resistance movements and in terms of holding um our administration accountable and this has been consistent like throughout the history of the new school but i think like mm-hmm. i feel like almost every year at least I'm aware. Like almost like once every school year, there's an example of this. I know there was like, um, there was some demonstrations that happened the year before I came that had to do with um, our cafeteria workers. And then I know earlier this year, um, in the spring, the new school was under fire by its student body for denying and withholding individuals' financial aid and insisting that students pay these large sums of money in order to remove holds from their accounts. And like the holds would be. Like, you have to get those holds removed in order to register for classes. And this disproportionately affected students of color. So a lot of the students called out our school and our administration on social media and protested. And the new school made adjustments to its financial policies. So this is like a small victory. Um, But... It would not have been possible without the coalition of students who spoke out bravely on social media about their economic circumstances and then the others who the institution that who held the institution accountable. Um, but I just feel like it's it shouldn't fall on like the students who are being affected by these policies to hold the institution accountable. I mean, they kind of have to, mm-hmm. they're gonna have to, and as a way to keep their Keep their education they have to but also it just made me during this time like think about how it really falls on like every student like every peer mm-hmm. of mine as well as like what i was saying earlier about the faculty that you know they're my tas like their well-being is also a part of like my well-being in terms of education like we're all kind of in this together and like that collective stance i think is really important to bring to your administration and there's definitely power in numbers and there's certainly power when your student body, like, doesn't go to class because they're pissed about something. And that's something that does happen a lot at the new school or, like, you know, like, frequently it will happen. Um, Is there examples that you can think of at Emory that you've experienced?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, at Emory, like, again, the administration is fairly diverse. So they're a lot more willing to talk about and act upon campus-wide initiatives. So, like... I don't know. It's sort of like it ha- we're mad and then they fix it and we're like, okay, cool. But I think in terms of like the student body, I do think there is a long way to go compared to administration, which is very weird to say. Um, like I don't think enough students really realize um, how much, how debilitating the cost of Emory health insurance is. And so particularly with class consciousness. And then the other topic would be climate change and just like, You know how does the university system interact with climate change um like like emory dining for example sources like 42 percent of their food locally and sustainably and they like are aiming to get to 75 percent in the next like few years um and so like yeah there's a lot there's a big way to go but it's great like that's way more than a lot of schools can say that they source their food sustainably um, but I just hear so many students complaining about the food and just like, you know, disparaging the dining experience when it's like, I, f- I feel like that's pretty discouraging and demotivating. Um, if I was like an admin and I heard that. So just like, I don't know, the, the student body should know more about like the student, the sustainability initiatives and like encourage them to move faster rather than ignoring it completely.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just... That's interesting that you bring up that anecdote. I think like I was thinking about, you know, you know, student like student body and like the staff that works there, but also just the way that the buildings are, you know, run, how sustainable and efficient Mm -hmm. these buildings are. Like, I think it's just important. And this is something that I I try to do. um, But it also like you have to remind yourself like every you have to remind yourself about like almost everything that you use or interact with when you're in these spaces is um just being not being passive like not just being a passive consumer of obviously the education you're getting but also you know how all the forces around you are come all the like the forces and dynamics are like working together to make this education possible there's something to think about with each and every one of them um i hope that like i hope that talking about land-grant universities for people who didn't understand them initially or didn't know about them is kind of like a helpful way. I know that was almost like the first thing for me that made me really critically think about the land that my that my school has. Um, So I think like that's one way to interact with your university is understanding like the land that it owns and how it's interacting with the community around it.
0: Yeah I mean my last thought on this is um you know, I'm going to refer to the Harvard uh, fossil fuel divestment thing that just happened. Um, so if you followed the news two weeks ago, by the time this episode comes out, Harvard divested their endowment away from fossil fuels, which was like multi-million, multi-hundred million, if not billions of dollars. Um, and there's a lot of controversy with that in like the environmental space of like, if we remove money completely... Do we then lose our voice in fossil fuels? And can we not advocate as well with um, that industry? And so that's a complicated matter. But I would say something you can do as a student, if you're more on like a research kind of track or like you're like me and you really find a lot of joy in like the unsexy stuff, like finance, um, investments, like really look into that. And where does your money go like how does your school spend your money how does it invest your money um build together a coalition of students and like start talking about it because if they're investing in something that is like awful like like um i don't know like defense companies maybe don't let them do that anymore and like advocate um so that's something that's like very niche that I think is very useful and that we can use a bit more of right now.
1: Definitely. I think that I think that I don't I don't think that finance is necessarily like unsexly. (laughs) I don't think you should like sell yourself short on that one. Like I think it's because I think that's helpful, like because there are students who like aren't going to do that research, but are also like invested in these issues. So for students that do do that research, Um, definitely share that with other people because there's people who care but maybe won't take the time to do the research but once you tell them or once you know they're gonna their eyes will open up and they will know that that's wrong but also if you're someone that is very interested in for this information there's probably someone on your campus who is also doing that research and knowing so it's also about sharing resources and information um, across you know across Campus, um, and also like amongst schools. Like I know when I talk about the new school, I'm really speaking for like the liberal arts school that I go to. There's art school, there's a music school that's a part of it, there's a dance school. So it's like it's not only I think we're insulated. So it's also like spreading that knowledge to like all the other schools and like really having conversations across schools, not just like within your own, although those are like super important as well, obviously. Um, Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. Do you have any other, any last thoughts, any final thoughts? I feel like we kind of wrapped it up on like a somewhat like, um, get educated. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which is like talking to myself too. Like there's always more to know and more to think about.
0: Yeah. Just, um, you know, have fun with it when you're researching and really learn about your school, wherever you end up going or that you're going to currently. Um, yeah. What a, what a, complex deep intricate episode
1: <laughs> yeah i think so there's a lot of different routes we could have gone down and like hopefully we didn't go down too too many um and kept it like kind of on the straight and narrow but um i think that yeah like you said like have fun with it i wish that this is something that i would have you know thought about consciously before going to colleges not just looking at like what do the dorms look like like what are they, like maybe looking mm-hmm, into like mm-hmm. who what companies are they interacting with it's just something to think about when you are looking for schools because I know a lot of people who interact with Dawn are high schoolers going to college relatively soon. Yeah. So for the book segment for this episode, um, I wanted to shout out the book that was kind of the impetus for me wanting to do an episode about land-grant universities because it was the first time that I came across any information on them and any information on the Moral Act. Maybe I learned about the moral act in high school, but I don't remember if I did. And I definitely did not do so in a critical way. It was probably just like <laughs> manifest destiny sort of situation. But um, <laughs> the book is called A Third University is Possible, and it's by Law um, also known as K. Wayne Yang, who is an associate professor of ethnic studies at the University of California, San Diego. If you're interested to learn more and the stuff that we were talking about today regarding land grant universities and settler colonialism and then contemporary university expansion and decolonization, this is a super good resource. We put a lot of information from it for this episode. Um, But also, the book discusses some interesting things that I, if I've heard of them, it's like only in passing. And the, um, author relates all these subjects together so the book also discusses cyborgs um, as agents of decolonization and draws creative comparisons between third cinema and black filmmaking with a third university and like reimagining a university but using like black filmmaking almost as like a metaphor to doing that um so like a quote from the book that kind of offers hope for a lot of the things that we were talking about today is that colonial schools carry decolonial writers. And it talks a little bit about like our responsibility as students um, and faculty member- members or anyone within the academic space to um, to make changes in a system that is so, so like we said, entrenched and intertwined with colonization, um, even today with expanding real estate. Um, I just remember reading this book when all the classes were online and I would like mute my class and just read the book. I can't really get away with that now (laughs) that classes are like in person, but, um, I recommend it. Once again, it's called a third university is possible. And I promise you will challenge your way of thinking about higher education. Um, but also you're going to learn things that you like probably didn't know a lot of things about, such as like cyborgs, which is something that I wasn't super familiar (laughs) with. Um, but it's a cool word to have in your vocabulary for sure.
0: Great. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you learned uh, something, if not a lot of things. <laughs> and catch us on the next episode where we'll be talking more about college. Uh, maybe some more fun stuff now that we've gotten all the serious stuff. Maybe
1: like way. the college admissions scandal or something like yeah. that. We could add that in there and get some like juicy stuff going.
0: <laughs> yeah. okay. I, I love that.
1: Alright. <laughs> all right.
0: Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Diversify Our Narrative, or you can go to diversifyournarrative.com where you can find resources, educational content, and more. Special thanks to Feel the Ambiances for our music. And don't forget to rate five stars on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify.